Hello, Relatively Prime listeners. This is your host and producer, Samuel Hansen. And I'm sorry that we're a little bit late this month, but there's a very good reason. I was at my day job, and a pole fell on my head, and I got a concussion. Yeah. Yeah, it... Yeah, that that totally happened. And and because of that concussion, I wasn't able to put together the show that I was planning on having for you this month. But that's okay, because I have something that's just as great, if not even better. As you are listening to this podcast, you probably also listen to other podcasts. So you know that this month, March of 2017, is Tripod Month, a month where all the podcasts out there are trying to get everyone to you know, make a suggestion to get other people to try podcasts with hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. It's pretty self-explanatory. And since I wasn't able to put together a show for you, I thought, well, why not tripod within the show itself? So for you this month, I am bringing to you an episode of the wonderful mathematical podcast, the other half. Now, some of you may have heard the other half. You've definitely heard Anna Hench, one of the hosts of another half on previous episodes of Relatively Prime. And so you may know that this is another one of my Acme Science podcasts. I am their executive producer, but the reason that they're so good has nothing to do with me. It is all Anna Hench and her co-host, Annie Roram, and their wonderful chemistry, and their great knowledge, and their just really good investigation of the topics that they cover. So, I'm bringing to you the third episode of The Other Half, which talks about mathematics and patents. I'm not going to tell you any more because it's really a great episode. And if you enjoy this, please go try more of their podcasts. And also, please take part in Tripod. Find a friend and just subscribe them to any podcast. I mean, if it's relatively prime, even better, but any podcast at all. Because there's really not that many people still to this day that listen to podcasts, and we really want more people to listen. And if you do that, make sure you talk about it somewhere online using the hashtag Tripod. And, you know, let me know. I'd love to know what any one of my listeners is suggesting to their friends, families, or even strangers. Just walk around yelling about podcasts. That's great. And so, without further ado, let's get to this month's episode, which is Tripod, The Other Half. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. We are your hosts. I'm Anna Hench. I'm a professor of mathematics at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, home of the sandwich with coleslaw french fries and a fried egg on it. <laughs> and I'm Annie Roram and I am a policy associate at the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service at the University of Virginia, but I no longer live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I have recently moved to Washington DC, home of President Barack Obama. Congratulations on the move. Thank you. That's so exciting. So what we want to talk about today is the very exciting topic of mathematics and patent law. So before we launch into this topic, let me give just a quick background of why we got interested in talking about this in the first place. 
So this summer, I was at a conference where I was working on a large database project called the LMFDB. What does LMFDB stand for, Anna? The LMFDB is the L Functions and Modular Forms Database. So what we were doing at this <laughs> what we were doing at this conference was building the database. So coming up with all these L functions, modular forms, and friends, <laughs> and pouring them into this database. So you can think of this as just a huge collection of algebraic objects. So these are like curves and lattices and polynomials and things like that. And so it came up at this conference, the discussion of whether or not we should seek some sort of copyright, trademark, or patent on the database and the objects therein. And this was a rich discussion, which was never actually resolved. And it's not so important what the resolution would have been anyways, but it really got me thinking what a strange question that was to ask if you could have intellectual property ownership over an algebraic object, like a curve or an equation. It just struck me as so odd. So I called Annie and told her how odd this was. And With a lot of excitement, Anna was like very, very excited to explore this topic, which I, of course, love because enthusiasm is one of my favorite traits about Anna. Let me give you just the most basic version of the question that we're asking. So what this really looks like is if you have inequality, let's take one that most school children learn at some point, the Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. This is kind of like asking if old Pythagoras could have gotten a patent on that expression, right? This idea that the leg squared plus leg squared equals hypotenuse in a triangle. So what do you think? Well, so first, maybe let's define what a patent really does for somebody. And it's pretty interesting, actually. The, the USPTO, the Patent and Trademark Office, explains that when somebody gets a patent, what they're getting is the right to exclude others from making, using, offering for sale, or selling the invention. So what, what like in particular, people aren't getting the right to make it themselves. What they get is the right to tell others they can't make it. Right. So Pythagoras wouldn't have been getting the right to state his fact about triangles, but he would have been excluding other people from using it. Wait a minute. But then, so like, I guess, what does it mean to use the Pythagorean theorem? Is this like, if anyone ever draws a triangle there, they would be in violation of his patent ownership? Or like, if you use the fact that a squared plus b squared equals c squared, where does that sort of roll out? Well, interestingly, by all accounts, and by all legal holdings, Pythagoras could not have obtained a patent on that equation. And there are a variety of ways to explain exactly why, but I think the most straightforward is that it's been determined through years and years and years of patent legislation and rulings that abstract ideas are not patentable. So think of Pythagoras as making this statement leg squared plus leg squared equals hypotenuse squared. And that's all he said. He didn't say, and you can reach this conclusion in order to build a house with a beautiful triangle on the roof. Or you can reach this conclusion and generate triangles 
willy-nilly using this contraption that I've invented to enact this equality. All he said was, this is a reality that I have identified. So am I to understand then that the thing that makes something patentable is not whether or not it has an application, because certainly for the Pythagorean theorem has applications, but whether or not it's actually an applied thing. That's it. You need to be able to operationalize or encode some sort of direct usefulness to the particular statement that you've come up with. So in general, things that are patentable are processes or machines or things that you can manufacture, not concepts, which is exactly what this a squared plus b squared equals c squared amounts to. It's a concept, but it doesn't automatically come with a way of using it. So, so right, so patents need to be useful. They need to be new, and they need to be what the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office calls non-obvious. So, like, they can't just be something that anybody walking down the street is going to be able to state out loud, like, the sky is blue. That's obvious. I think there's something also interesting to the fact that this a squared plus b squared equals c squared, it's not as obvious as saying the sky is blue, but it was true before you said it. Right? It's not as though Pythagoras created something new. He merely said something that was true all along. That's spoken like such a devoted mathematician as you are just the vessel through which universal truths can be can be brought into this world. And I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that math is just a way of of writing down in a very particular language things that are true. But it like is you know, is math discovered or invented is such a, a wonderful philosophical question. This reminds me of a horrible quote that I heard from a mathematician recently who wrote some very complicated equation on the board and said, do you understand this equality? It's not a matter of math. It's just a matter of eyesight. <gasps> because when something feels so obviously clear to you, you think, well, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. It's simply true. Yeah. <laughs> right you the math once uncovered it does become merely a matter of eyesight to understand it and and that's actually what makes a mathematician right you know everybody has the capacity and this is a belief that you and I have strongly right everybody can do math sure what what makes a mathematician is their engagement with the subject matter to the extent and to the point where it becomes a matter of eyesight not a matter of deep wrestling understanding anymore because you've you've passed that exposure and that experience. Anyway, <laughs> that's an aside. Oh, that's a that's a little bit off in a different direction, but nevertheless, we can rest assured that something like the Pythagorean theorem is not patentable, and I think we can both agree that. Neither is it patentable, nor should it be. If you were able to patent things like that, or equivalent things, you would be seriously throwing a monkey wrench in the ability for people to do anything down the road, right? Like if you have a patent on the Pythagorean theorem, or the quadratic formula, or I don't know, the equation of a line, you would be hindering everybody else from ever using them, or really even like 
looking at a line, right? Like, or, or, or imagining right. a triangle, right? Those would be patent infringements somehow. Right. It would have been far too costly to invent calculus <laughs> if you had to pay for the use of every single function. Right. And that's exactly going back to this idea of like excluding people being the, the right that you are granted when you receive a patent. Patents are really only enforceable when the person who holds a patent goes after another party for infringing on it. That's like, you're basically granting the right to legal action. And what it amounts to is a lot of money in the form of licensing fees or lawsuits. Okay, this is interesting. So I have to be very upfront with you that I don't know very much about patent law. So I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants here with you. And I think that right now I feel pretty convinced that Mathematics shouldn't have patents, but check back in with me in a few minutes and see if I still think okay. that way. I, I think should also, I should right also now. own up to the fact that I am no legal expert, but I did have the benefit of a... Oh, you sound like oh, one. I'm, I'm merely um, referencing in my mind this wonderful conversation I had with a professor of intellectual property law at William & Mary Law School, Sarah Wasserman Ryecks, who was very kind and spoke to me about this at length about a month ago, and I really appreciated her insights. I'm Sarah Wasserman Riots, and I'm an assistant professor at William & Mary Law School. But I myself am no expert. So right now, I think we're in agreement that math that's simply a matter of eyesight should not be patentable. <laughs> but I love that. <laughs> it's the so, eyesight test. Oh, it's so mean. <laughs> it's so mean. <laughs> Let, let's like dial it up just one notch. There are other things specifically algorithms come to mind that have a little bit more creation involved with them, right? So I think of algorithms as not just being like plain as the nose on your face, but maybe as plain as a recipe. Exactly. Which is exactly what an algorithm is. It's a, a set of instructions, right? It's a, it's a defined process for achieving something. Right. So a weird example of this, which most people don't think of as an algorithm, but indeed it is. Have you ever multiplied several multi-digit numbers together oh. and you put one frequently. on top of the other frequently right you put one on top of the other and take the digit to the farthest right and multiply it by everything on top and then you yes. put a zero and do this again right and what you're really doing I'm having this image in my head of being in third grade and learning how to do this and having it be such a like breakthrough right like oh if I do these things in this particular order, I will be able to multiply these two numbers together and get the correct answer every time. And it's mysterious yes. when really all you're doing is just distributing. All you've mm -hmm. done is taking the first thing and break it up into the ones, tens, hundreds, whatever, and then you're d distributing. You're using the distributive law. But no one would ever recognize it as that. Because when you learn it, it's this incredibly opaque thing. Mm -hmm. But it's an algorithm for multiplication. Now... What's weird about that is that, well, first of all, to be honest with you, I don't know if they even teach people how to multiply like that anymore. It's been a long time since I was in third grade. and, and But how else would you multiply? Like, can you imagine an alternative universe in which... Annie, I got to tell you, these people who are coming out of school right now, the way that they add and multiply, they make grids, they fill out numbers, this new oh. math. I have to be perfectly frank with you. I'm not quite sure how it works. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is a really good, actually, that's a really great, um, like, you understand the math 
what you don't have a good grasp on are exactly. the algorithms by which the math exactly. is achieved. That's why I think this is a really cool example because here's an obvious thing as plain as the nose on your face, but there are several different recipes you can use to get to it. Mm. So mm. what if yes. somebody wanted to take out a patent on exactly that, our method that we just described for multiplying multi-digit numbers? Somebody was the first person to observe that setup. So, it, and there are different ways to do it. So I, I, I think it's non-obvious. It's barely non-obvious, but it's like just over the border, I think. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's kind of like walk through that. So non-obvious, novel, right? If, if you are the first person to really make this um, recipe up, then you get novelty on it usefulness is this other kind of important um, threshold or barrier that that patents have to cross, right? Is it useful? Well, yeah, you can make a pretty clear argument for why it's useful. So, you know, in theory, this algorithm for achieving this mathematical outcome holds the qualifications for being patentable in a very kind of straightforward way. I think that what we might be missing, though, is a direct end explicitly defined application for it. I, I, I agree with you. I, I feel sufficiently convinced that you shouldn't be able to hold a patent on multi-digit number multiplication. However, if I had a patent on that, how rich would I be? <laughs> like so rich. Well, everybody would want to buy a license, right? But I wonder if part of the kind of sense of whether or not things should be granted patents is also like, how good a job you can do at enforcing or uh, maintaining the patent you have, right? Because one of the reasons that it would be kind of silly to hold the patent on that is because you're not going to know every time somebody infringes that right. You know, like, how could you possibly keep an eye on all the people that are benefiting from the algorithm that you hold a patent for? So add to your list of things necessary to get a patent. There's a certain level of, like, specificity required with the thing that somehow it's identifiable as your your way not someone else's way right but there are algorithms that are patentable that have been in fact patented that are perhaps a little bit more what intricate detailed difficult yes so, okay, so I, I think I know okay. where you're going right now. Let me <laughs> step in. Please, May I? please be my guest. <laughs> so we've gone, we started out simple with the Pythagorean theorem. That's out. Multiplication's a little bit harder. It's out. But there are, right, legitimate algorithms that are non-obvious, have sincere applications, and have a high level of specificity, and are brand new. And the coolest example of this is RSA encryption. This is an example of an algorithm that's totally non-obvious, extremely widely used, and for based on what you've told me so far, feels patentable. Want me to give you the quick down and dirty on RSA encryption? That's exactly what I want. But first, actually, well, maybe the down and dirty will include this, but when you say encryption, let's, like, what is encryption exactly? Because, you know, that uh, word gets tossed around so much. Um, it uh, it really does, but it truly means something particular, right? What does it mean? The idea behind encryption is that you have a string of letters or numbers, and you want to send it somewhere from point A to point B, and you want to find a way to 
make it secret, jumble it up, or trying to define encryption without saying the word encryption. You want to encrypt it so that you can send it from A to B so that if somebody intercepts the message while it's on its way, they won't be able to decipher it. Okay. So it's a way of encoding information to keep it secret. Perfect. I love that. That's like very clear and concrete in my head. Good. Okay. So RSA encryption was, oh, I, I, I'm wavering. Do I say discovered or invented? It was discovered slash invented by three professors at MIT, Rivas, Shamir, and Edelman. And the basic idea of it is that it's a public key encryption protocol. This means, let's say I have a message that I want to send to you, Annie. Okay. Public key encryption can be thought of as the following. So you have a box with a lock and a key. So it's like a lock box with a key. The public part is the box with a lock on it. And you can send me an unlocked box and I can put something in it for you. I don't need the key to lock it because it's just a little padlock and I can clamp it shut and I send it back to you and then only you have the key to unlock it. So it's a way that you can give anyone your open box and they can put stuff in it for you and lock it. But once it's locked, you're the only person on earth who can open it. Aha. So this is a way for me to get a message from you. Precisely. So if I, if I needed to get a message to you, I would call you up and say, hey, Annie, send me your public key. Got it. Got it. I can. This is a really concrete thing in my head, right? What I do is send you the box. <laughs> it's an unlocked box. You send me the box. And, and you send it to me. You open. can stick something the in it. The padlock's jangling yep. off the side. But once you... Like once you click that padlock shut, the only way for it to be unlocked is with this key that I haven't shared with you or with anybody else. Exactly. So you're the only person who can unlock it. So mathematically, what this looks like is I need to send you some string of numbers and I use an encryption method that you've given me. So you've given me something that's it's called your public key and I use that to encrypt the message I send it to you, and then you use your private key to decrypt it. Okay, with you so far. And these are all like big strings of numbers. So you can kind of see how the, how the exchange protocol works and why it's so secure, because you're the only person who has the key to unlock the box, and why it's also so effective, because you can send your public box anywhere. You can even send it to someone who's completely untrustworthy. Somebody who might spill the beans. <laughs> exactly. You might know that I'm a big blabbermouth, but you need something from me, you can still give me the box with the lock dangling off of it. That's not going to change my ability to open it. For the it. record, I would I never still don't have call the key. you a blabbermouth. You have always kept my confidences in, in strict confidence. <laughs> what, a, what a kind and good friend you are. <laughs> but that, you can see how this makes this a really powerful thing. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thing. Okay, so what do Rivest, Shamir, and Edelman exactly have to say about this in terms of math? So the thing that generates the public and private key is the algorithm. And it's a four-step algorithm. So let me tell you the four steps, and then let me tell you why this algorithm works. Okay. Step one, pick two really big prime numbers. I, yep. Got it? Five and seven seem big enough to me, right? Bigger. Let's go like 50 digits okay. long. Okay. Uh, nay, let's go 100 digits long. Okay. So I can't actually think of those off the top of my head, but I can surely locate no. them somewhere. There's certainly a, an encyclopedia of prime numbers that goes up to the 100 digits. You could find that. Yeah. Step two, pick another number. Any number? Any number. It doesn't have to be 100 digits long. No, any number. Right, good, easy, done. Good, okay. Step three, do a little bit of math. Step four, do a little bit of math. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to 
wave my hands at those steps, but it's super short. It's a four-step algorithm. Step one is pick two numbers. Step two is pick another number. And then steps three and four, I'm joking a little bit because sometimes if you say do a little math, who knows how long that takes. But these are like one-liner math things, very, very quick. So it's an extremely easy algorithm to learn, and it's extremely secure. So it seems, you know, kind of going back to this idea of like, what are the steps that we need to take to multiply multi-digit numbers together, right? Like, as long as I follow the steps one by one, I'm going to come to some sort of conclusion that is guaranteed, with the one difference being that the actual kind of resulting figure will depend on the original numbers I've chosen. But that's what's changing from time to time, is that those initial three numbers I choose are are my only kind of point of maneuverability, and then everything else is determined for Exactly. Me. The way that I always visualize this in my head is for RSA, you pick your three numbers, you pour them in the top of this machine, and you turn a crank, and then <laughs> turn the crank handle a few times, and then boop, your public and private key pop out the other okay. side. So it's a completely prescribed thing. Cool. And that's math. That's, that's math. math. Sure, that's math. That's de- oh, that's definitely math. The most mathy thing about it is the reason that it's so secure, and that is lies in these two big prime numbers that you picked, and the fact that part of the algorithm has you multiplying these two prime numbers together to get some other absurdly large number. 100 digits times 100 digits is going to be like just enormous. And the only way to discover someone's private key is to factor that really big number and reclaim those two primes. Aha. So if I had chosen, say, five and seven, and multiplied them together to get 35, it would be very easy to get my private key because everybody looks at 35, and it's surely just a matter of eyesight to determine that five and seven... Simply eyesight. ...are the numbers that you need to multiply to get But for much longer numbers, it's so hard. So for example, okay, so if you pick... The hardest numbers to factor are things that are products of two really big primes that are relatively close together. But it, so, the, and the reason that that's hard to do is because, like, something that's a product of two primes is like that's it. You have to figure out what those two primes are because there's no other way to factor it. You just have to know exactly what those two primes are. Exactly, and there are like sieve methods and classical factorization methods to do this and kind of ad hoc factorization methods depending on different aspects of the number. But to date, the largest such number that's been factored is something like 212 digits. We haven't even gotten past 212 digits. And that thing took 2,000 CPU years to factor. They did it on several (laughs) machines in parallel. So I think the whole project was completed over maybe two years time but still nevertheless that is really slow wow and that's two that's 212 digits and we were talking just now about a something with maybe 10,000 digits like this is going to be very hard to crack Mm -hmm. is basically the upshot of this conversation right factoring numbers pretty difficult factoring large numbers exceedingly difficult rsa is like the codified technique that leverages that fact in order to create this really useful setup, which is a way of securely sending messages. Beautifully put. Exactly. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, but so, and that was patentable. That, 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 is that what, that, that's the upshot of this whole that thing. That sounds totally patentable. Does it have a patent? I'm glad you asked. <laughs>
No longer, but it did. So here's the story on the the non-mathematical end of RSA. This is what I have a little bit more data on. Not, Not the math itself, but the history of it. So, right, these three guys, Rivest, Shamir, and Edelman, MIT professors, they figure out this mathematical application. They publish a paper on it in 1977, and then they're granted a, a patent for it. So in 1983, MIT receives the, the patenting rights and grants these three professors, Rivest, Shamir, and Edelman, the licensing for RSA encryption. And they held a patent on this encryption system for 17 years, minus two weeks. So for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, there was a limit on the patent that they held that was 17 years long. And I don't know whether all patents granted in 1983 had a 17-year limit or what, but they had a term-limited patent for 17 years. Two weeks before it expired, they bestowed the great gift of releasing the patent into the universe. And (laughs) they lost out on two weeks of licenses that they could have granted. But they held a patent on it, which is pretty interesting. And nobody, as far as I understand, challenged their right to hold that patent. If it happened today, would it look the same? Right. Or, or would it be like such a magnificent breakthrough today? I mean, like math aside, would the like creation of this algorithm be such a gigantic um, step forward in a world where, you know, like nine-year-olds know how to write code? As time creeps by, we are getting better and better at factoring large numbers. So I'm thinking in particular, sometime in the 90s, Carl Pomerantz, who's a mathematician at Dartmouth, he came up with an idea called a quadratic sieve that significantly improved our ability to factor really big numbers, which arguably is as important and as groundbreaking and innovative, applicable, all these things, as RSA but he never got a patent. I don't know if he applied for one, but I suppose he should have been granted one if he had, if RSA could get one, because it's, I think it's in the same league. But then here's the other thing that I think. If something like this sieve method, which is very, very good, gets a patent, then aren't you kind of stopping people from inventing better sieve methods? Because it's not like, like RSA isn't, the best way that we'll ever encrypt anything. So, but what's interesting is in in these all of these patent cases, what you see is a concern by the courts that you're going to cut off um, innovation upstream, and and that kind of tension is actually present in a lot of patent law uh, when you're talking about whether what you're cutting off is sort of the tools for uh, for further innovation, or what you're doing is is giving someone a market for something that is already being marketed to consumers. And when you're talking about sort of end user type stuff, things that's directly marketed to the consumers, of course, they're just not as concerned. But if you're talking about tools that are used and upon which other innovation might build, then we start to really see this concern. And I think that's that's why algorithms um, and abstract ideas are, are targeted. I think that we can break this discussion into two pieces. I think that 
theoretical math is on one side and software is on another side and algorithms sit right on the line between them. And it seems like algorithms can kind of tip from side to side. And math in its purest form, I feel like shouldn't be patentable for all the reasons we've talked about. But software is kind of a weird thing too. I mean, I could see a reality in which you patent software. Can you do that? Sure, you can patent software. And I think people sometimes love that. And then there are other groups of people that hate that, right? And I think that the argument for hating the ability to patent software in the form of like um, patenting the mechanism by which, for example, you can like swipe across your smartphone to unlock the screen, right? Like the, the software that allows you to do that encompasses both, I think, the code that you have to write in order to create that mechanism, but also the idea of that me- mechanism, right? A software patent kind of like exists in between the, f- the function that you get your code to enact and the idea or the um, design of the system itself. And I, I think that there are people who argue that what all of those steps are is just kind of like concatenating a whole bunch of abstract ideas until you get to a conclusion. Yeah. And that group of people might say, you know, software patents are patents on math, right? Software is math. And if you make that equality, then then the outcome is pretty clear, right? We've already said math as an abstract idea isn't patentable. And so if you equate software with math, then software isn't patentable either. But I think it's the equality that is really the question there. Sure. Is software math or is software something else? Oh, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. Which is why software patents become this highly controversial piece of, of patent granting and patent law and why people have such strong opinions about them. And I think to your point earlier, software is very bizarre in that it moves so quickly. A thing that would have been an innovative software patent 20 years ago wouldn't even, we, there probably isn't even a machine around that would run it anymore. Exactly, right. We'd have to go back and like get those cards that you punch holes in and then like go to a supercomputer that's actually only as powerful as a modern calculator and get the cards to get fed through. No, that's exactly right. This world in which innovation actually moves so quickly is one that can be very difficult to regulate which is really what patent law does. I mean, I think if one were to do it again, I don't know that either patent law or copyright law are well suited to deal with software. But but again, I mean, because you don't know what's coming, it's it's hard to to craft things to be industry specific because you don't know how the industry will, you know, what the next industry will be. Intellectual property law is about drawing boundaries on inventors' rights to things and inventors' ability to say, this is my idea, not your idea. And, and software actually is difficult to manage or, or regulate because there is so much collaboration and there is so much building on what has come before. And... It moves so quickly that it's hard to say what is one person's idea versus another person's idea. So for, for this reason, as well as this question of the equality between software and math, as well as the, the 
you know, what is to be gained? There's a lot of benefit to be gained from holding a software patent. Uh, it's very, it could be very lucrative to have exclusive rights to an idea. It, it is a very controversial area of intellectual property law, and one that many people have opinions about. Do you have an opinion about it? As a mathematician, do you have an opinion about software patents in particular? Jeez, not particularly. I think that I, I don't see software so much as a linking together of abstract ideas. I see it as kind of far from math in a sense, because uh, it feels patentable to me. I feel like if I were a software developer, I would want to be able to patent my work because it's an end product. So I have to, yeah, something that I just have to ask because it's in my head. It's it's funny that my like instant reaction is that math is not patentable and software is when a huge difference between people developing math and people developing software is that people who develop math are almost completely academic mathematicians and people who develop software are almost completely industry workers so the framework and infrastructure under which both of these things are evolving looks so completely different, completely different. And part of it is like, they're different because the people who choose to participate in math or in software development are choosing to subscribe to a particular worldview almost, right? If you're, you as a mathematician have signed yourself up for a lifestyle in which math plays this fundamental role for you. And you knew going in that you weren't going to be able to make big bucks off of patents that you held on the theorems that you proved. It's not about whether it's worthwhile to do that discovery. And it's not about whether you sort of deserve to be compensated, but it's about how do we draw the lines on the thing that you're getting, the legal right that you're getting. And is there, is there a way you can describe it so that the courts can draw lines around it and still allow other people to continue on with their discoveries. And if there is, there's a way that you can tie it to something concrete that you're doing, then that's fine. But if you can't, then you are just taking that idea. So I think we've literally touched on absolutely everything I know about patents. I think so. And I think we've, I have a better understanding of the gradation of ideas that can exist from totally unpatentable seeming to totally patentable seeming and what that climb looks like. With that thought, I have a piece of homework for you and a piece of homework for me. Well, okay, I'll call them both pieces of homework for us. One piece of homework is we need to figure out how many mathematicians have ever had patents or have ever applied for patents because I'm curious about that. That's homework one. Homework two is not actually homework at all, but I should mention that this conference, this database conference that I brought up at the top of the episode. I'm going back for round two next week. It's going to be in Rhode Island. We're going to keep working on this LMFDB database. And maybe this conversation will reach a new resolution next week. I can certainly say something about patentability of elliptic curves, namely, no. (laughs) But man, and maybe this is our next episode or perhaps another one down the line. What about 
copyright. Oh, I think we need to stop right there. <laughs> so good. Well, have fun at that conference, Anna. I guess that's it for us today. Thank you so much to our listeners who are still with us. And as always, we would like to thank Samuel Hansen of acmescience.com, our executive producer who makes us sound so good. And we urge you to go over to acmescience.com and check out the other podcasts. And thank you too to Sarah Wasserman Ryax, who was such a wonderful resource in my learning about intellectual property law and an absolute pleasure to speak with. Now I have an invention I'm going to tell you about, but first we're going to turn our mics off. <laughs>